ESPS. Britain's top soldier accused of incompetence and worse by an American general. Can he be right? Obviously, it's a, a, an attempt at sensationalism to say that General Carter killed troops. It's just not true. Women on the front line, but it's a much bigger story than that. Putin's game, a new Cold War. And poppies, Britain quits Afghanistan, but there's more opium than ever. General Sir Nick Carter, the Army's Chief of the General Staff, has been accused of costing people's lives in Afghanistan. An American general, Dan Bolger, has written a book saying General Nick failed to call down close air support when needed. But is that true? Earlier today, I spoke to America's Army Commander in Europe, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who says, no, it's not. My role uh, was Director of Operations for RC South in Kandahar, uh, under then Lieutenant General Nick Carter, or Major General Nick Carter, excuse me, when he was Com RC South. So I was Director of Operations. I would have been responsible for uh, employment of uh, air and artillery uh, during any of the operations. And we also had a U.S. Marine Brigadier General who was our Deputy Commander. So either he or I would have been the ones to, if anybody was ever going to deny air or artillery, it would have been one of us in our roles, and neither of us ever did that. So uh, that's that's why I say that the allegation that R.C. South, uh, General Carter, denied use of air or artillery was, is just flat-out incorrect. It's, it's important to remember that the uh, mission at the time that uh, General Carter and our contingent, which was predominantly British-led, although we had Americans, Canadians, Australians, and other uh, nations in it, uh, the mission in Afghanistan had changed to protect the population. Uh, this, was, this came from ISAF. General McChrystal was the commander at the time. So a fundamental change in the approach of what forces were supposed to be doing. And uh, coupled with that was a, an emphasis on improving Afghan leadership at the civilian leadership at the, uh, for the ministries and down into the districts. And so uh, General Carter, of course, then organized our, our headquarters and the battle space uh, to do that, to secure, protect the population from the Taliban, uh, and also to help deliver uh, governance through Afghan um, civil leadership. So, of course, there was a, a difference in, in previous years from the, you know, how much kinetic force was used, uh, but never, ever was someone denied uh, in a case where it was necessary uh, to protect uh, allied forces or coalition forces. So, it, obviously, it's a, a, an attempt at sensationalism to say that General Carter killed troops. It's just not true. You say it's an attempt at sensationalism. I'm pretty sure that in America, very few people will have heard of General Sir Nick Carter or even care what's written about him. Well, uh, retired Lieutenant General Dan Bolger uh, is, is actually a very good friend of mine. He's, a, he's an officer that I've respected for many years since I was a young officer. Uh, he's one of the uh, smartest, uh, intellectually uh, most uh, gifted officers that the U.S. Army's had many years. He's produced many books. Uh, so I was uh, surprised uh, and, frankly, very disappointed 
when I read this particular part of uh, of his book, uh, and I, I told him so. I, I reached out to him and, and asked him what he based this on. Um, he is an honorable man, uh, but this this defies uh, uh, understanding uh, from my perspective. Uh, but you know, when, uh, to use a phrase like that, you know that that sort of sensationalism uh, helps sell books too. You are the first general to come forward and volunteer a defence for General Nick Carter. Why you? Why now? Well, of course, I just learned about this uh, night before last uh, when the uh, Sunday Times article uh, came out. Uh, to be honest, I don't normally read books um, about ongoing or current situations when uh, people involved are still on active duty or still in government uh, because I think it's probably too close to, to give proper perspective. But when I saw the Sunday Times article about that particular aspect uh, and having um, both firsthand knowledge and experience there at RC South for 15 months and also um, knowing General Bolger uh, very well, uh, I thought it was appropriate and timely for me to uh, step forward. Um, at, I've seen uh, General Carter up close for uh, over a year uh, in his role there. Um, the most creative, innovative uh, officer I saw in Afghanistan during my entire time. Um, he was constantly not in the FOB at Kandahar. Uh, instead, he spent most of his time with Afghan district leaders, uh, the governor and uh, military leaders, uh, constantly out with them. Have you spoken to either General Sir Nick Carter or Lieutenant General Bolger about either about this book and what's been said? Yes, I, I, I did um, uh, have a, an email exchange with my with my old friend uh, General Bolger. I, I told him I was I was disappointed. Uh, I asked him what he based his allegations on, what sources he had used, uh, because um, I, I never saw General Bolger in Kandahar uh, during the entire time that I was there. So none of this is based on his own personal observation. Um, the sources that he used, and I, you know, uh, he told me who he mm. talked to, and, and I won't reveal that because it was a trusted. And General Carter. But let me say that the people he talked to never visited Kandahar when I was there, or in one case, as a discredited uh, U.S. Brigade commander. And General Carter. Um, I have not spoken directly to General Carter yet. Your message to him? Uh, my message to him is that I was extremely proud. Uh, to be uh, his director of operations, and I've taken many lessons forward from my time with him about how to lead uh, large formations in a very complex environment. That was Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, and Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here and has been listening to all of that. What do you make of it, Christopher? It's a great clean-up job, isn't it, really? I mean, what's what was was quite remarkable. What are you suggesting? I uh, mean, someone's got to defend him, haven't they? The, yeah, but what's interesting is that, um, A, why is anybody going to defend him? I mean, his record is quite... Exemplary, yeah. as he said. And also the fact that uh, uh, General Dan Bolger um, never actually served in that group. This is all second-hand stuff from him, which is remarkable. And he doesn't say so in the book, that is, is, this is what I hear. It is really sort of like an editor's got hold of it and thumps it home. What's fascinating about this is that um, uh, General Nick is one of these guys in any other generation would go right to the top, as he has in the army, and he becomes CDS, uh, etc., and he's considered really, really, really sort of cool in everything he does. Why has nobody else, even in private briefings in the MOD, said, well, let's put this in some sort of perspective and say the sort of things that I've just said, for example, A, the guy got it right, and B, um, he, said, he said, you know, he was always in headquarters. 
Well, that's where you put generals. Well, let, let's say this is an invitation for anyone who wants to do that to come on to SIPREP and do so. Um, but what's interesting, though, is this book has come out. It's been written by an American in America. How many Americans were really taking notice of what they write about General Sir Nick Carter? Oh, Would it really sell books no, there? No, it won't. It won't sell a single book there. You've never heard of Nick Carter, and it's very not, unlikely to. Uh, and not many of them have heard of General Bolger either. No, the, the important thing is that it appeared in a British newspaper, and therefore it gets the headlines. But fascinating, it's been an American... A senior American has come along and says, hey, hang on, this guy's good. Christmas Day with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, mental stress in the services. Ten years and more to come. And why the Islamists have gone to the bank. This is BFBS. Sit rep. It started again. Women on the front line. The latest Whitehall report is on its way, but what's the reality and how do other countries do it? We're joined now by Cathy Nell from the NATO committee that looks at gender issues. Cathy, good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Do women really have to have been in combat roles on the front line to get to the top in the armed forces? Good afternoon. Uh, they do at the moment, yes. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that women can't be, for example, heads of branch and uh, play a very important role in defence in terms of being a specialist. However, across defence, we do have um, two-star equivalent females in the Foreign Commonwealth Office and DFID. Um, so there is probably more that the that defence could actually do. Um, we do have to ensure, though, that the uh, the tables are turned and that we do have females' voices at the top because mm. if fe- female voices don't get heard you, early... You, you were saying that they do have to have been in combat roles, mm. but some countries have found a way around this to promote women, haven't they, up the ranks? Absolutely. It's quite interesting. Um, General Morrison of the Australian Army quite recently um, realised that he wanted to have um, female voices um, on the top table and has got round that uh, that loophole. So, yes, he's very much an advocate of the gender perspective. So what kind of challenges do women come across specifically? Well, in the military, I would say one of the main things is, is making sure that the gender perspective um, is fully understood and that the role that women can play on operations is made as relevant as possible, as early as possible. Um, this, this means that then planning operations will include um, women and also include the role that women can play specifically within that operation, be that Afghanistan, but more widely um, across the peacekeeping sphere. Christopher. I'm just thinking that uh, this whole idea of um, uh, women on the front line, for example, I mean, you, you know, you, you look at the opinion polls. There are not that many women who are saying, look, we want to be on the front line. And so it becomes an issue which, in fact, is not much, is not that much of an issue. Far more importantly, I think, is you, you, you split this. Um, operational, women in operational uh, command and women at what I would call the desk jobs at the, uh, at the very top. That's quite a different job. I could see, for example, there's no reason why you shouldn't have a woman uh, who's got certain uh, lots of organisational uh, and, and political experience. No reason why you shouldn't have a woman CDS because mm. the function is quite different from having somebody who's a half-colonel and has got to go mixing it somewhere in a foreign part. So, Cathy, how long do you think it would be till we have a woman CDS? I think that's a great question. Um, I think, as you've just said, uh, women are quite capable of doing it, and we see across government women in very senior leadership roles. Other countries Margaret Thatcher would have applauded that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, just to talk about the effect that women have on the front line, what advantages do you see to having women in that position? I think it's quite interesting to start with a quote by uh, General Camer of the Dutch Army who said that um, it's much more dangerous to be a woman in conflict than a soldier. And I think this this really alludes to the fact that uh, many developing countries that we deploy to have women in their own armed forces. 
Rebel armies also have women in combat. There are also issues around child soldiers with significant issues of sexual and gender-based violence. So I think in those sort of contexts, we really need to look at how we operate effectively. How do we um, treat women? How do we protect women? And how do we make sure that um, the issues are being reported effectively? And a woman in uniform, a British army officer, turning up in that kind of situation, what kind of effect does she have compared to a man? Well, I think the women on the ground would much rather see a female face in uniform than they would do a male. And many of the men, in their eyes, have been the perpetrators of this violence. I'll tell you something, just around the corner from where we're sitting in, in, in these studios, there's a photograph of, uh, of a, a woman soldier. Uh, it was taken in Afghanistan, and shortly after it was taken, a couple of months after it was taken, she was killed. Now, I reckon that any argument about women on the front line starts there. Women are on the front line. Cathy, mm-hmm. how well are the armed forces doing on gender inequality? I think the Army has, uh, and Defence have made huge strides over the last 10 years. Um, we have um, a very, very good package in terms of quality and diversity, and our values and standards are second to none and understood by all at every level. However, I think there's a lot more that could be done in terms of um, understanding the gender perspective and making sure that gender is very much considered right at the heart of our operations to deliver the operational effect. Of course, um, the media always uh, latches on to this women in combat roles. Uh, anecdotally, Christopher was saying he doesn't think many women do want to go and fight in terms of infantry soldiers. Anecdotally, what do you think? I think that um, that is true. I think many women would join to to be part of a specialist role. However, I think women want the opportunity. We, we already have women fighter pilots. We have women helicopter pilots. We have women who are in the special forces. It's just that women would like the opportunity to shine at the specialism that they do do and play a, a role in business. And how, how many of them are able to at the moment, do you think? Percent, I mean, it's a bit mean of me to put you on the spot, but do you have an idea of, of, of what percentage of women are really getting to where they want to be in the armed forces? I think there's a ceiling. That I would say at the moment there is a glass ceiling. Um, I think women, women are promoted to major, women get to lieutenant colonel. Beyond then, it's a struggle. Um, and I think the, the women I serve alongside in NATO, it's quite interesting. I sit next to a, a Swedish tank commander and I sit next to a, a German lady, Steffi, who's in the German infantry. So um, our partners are also living and breathing it at the moment. All right, Cathy, good to speak to you. Thank you very, very much for coming. That's Cathy Nell from the NATO Committee on Gender Perspectives. Well, with commemorations to mark Remembrance Day still fresh in our minds, there's another not-so-good story to tell about poppies. Their cultivation in Afghanistan has gone up by 7%, according to a United Nations report. The eradication of poppy farming was a key policy for international forces during the 13-year war, and America has spent more than $7 billion on it. Mark Collin is the officer in charge at the UN Office on Drugs and Crime in Kabul and joins us from there now. Good to speak to you today, Mark. What, what's going wrong then? Okay, well, as you've just mentioned, there has been a, uh, a large uh, growth in poppy cultivation over the, uh, the last number of years. But to say it's all doom and gloom, it would be um, it's a glass half full, glass half empty type of uh, scenario. We have learned valuable lessons. We're now sitting with a government that's changing uh, in Afghanistan and we're being uh, presented with opportunities to address this rather than uh, uh, wallow in the, um, what has happened over the past uh, decade or so. Is it simply the case that combat troops are leaving and the alternatives for farmers just don't pay? 
No, it, it's not just a simple matter of the um, alternatives not paying. It is just a, a question of the uncertainty that exists in the country, um, partially due to the withdrawal of the international troops, but uh, due to the own political the, the political developments within Afghanistan. And that has to be the uh, rural population is uncertain about this, and poppy, unfortunately, is one of the um, commodities that the uh, rural population can bank on, and uh, it can provide some form of security for the future, which uh, tends to be or appears to be lacking at the moment. Christopher, just explain why poppies have caused such a problem in Afghanistan. First thing is that the British introduced this in the 18, 1830s so they could raise taxes on taxes on the farmers who actually grew They brought them. the per- first poppies to Afghanistan? The, they, they planted on a grand scale. In, in fact, in, in, in Helmand, I can't remember, it was 1834 or something like that, there was a commission report. The important thing is this. If you've got something uh, like uh, opium poppies, you have a chain which stretches, let's say, from Helmand to the streets of London or anywhere else. And therefore, you've got all the agencies, all the uh, villains, whatever you like to call them, who are involved in it, and it expands that control over the people that actually produce. Uh, it is a form of enormous sort of uh, income, etc. That produces a bit of a gap in the security of your programme. But that's a very sort of Western view that you really ought to be planting maize instead or somebody has come up with an idea of planting pineapples, for example. Mm. That's a sort of Western... Whereas, at the moment, the system sort of works. And it's interesting that uh, Mark is saying that, that there are there's a programme now uh, which will uh, which is designed to address the problem rather mm. than will address the problem. Mark Cullen and Kabul, exactly what is being done at the moment to stop poppy production? Well, at this stage, the, the government has uh, numerous schemes in place. Ministry of Contra Narcotics is responsible for um, the uh, looking at the overall policy within the government. The governor-led eradication is one of the aspects that has been um, addressed over the last number of years. But the, the focus does tend to be uh, largely on eradication, and I think the international community is in agreement that this has to be changed from a, an eradication approach to more uh, uh, an approach that is inclusive of the development agenda, that mm. we can look at the, um, the the human security needs as opposed to the, the state security needs within the country. And doesn't that, that increase in poppy production prove a simple fact, that the stability of Afghanistan is far from won? And that wasn't the idea, was it? Well, it's yeah, very clear the, the population is uncertain about the future. and But, again, this is presenting us with an opportunity. We've now seen the first ever uh, peaceful transition uh, of uh, a government in Afghanistan. It hasn't happened in the history of the country before. We're sitting with a government of national unity at the moment. So, again, this is offering us with a, a very valuable opportunity to move things forward and to uh, to revise the policies that have existed and to introduce new mechanisms. Well, Mark Holland, good to talk to you. Hopefully we can talk to you again and see what progress is made. That's uh, Mark Holland at the UN Office on Drugs and Crime in Kabul. Thank you. There was a conference this week in Washington of academics, military and political analysts to try and figure out what Russia's President Putin is up to. Why did he go to the G20 Economic Summit in Australia, accompanied by four Russian destroyers? And what's next for Ukraine? Now, Christopher, did he get that fanging from David Cameron? He did. 
he got a very good fanging for David Cameron. He didn't get such a. He got a much better one if you if you if you like the fanging idea uh, from the uh, Prime Minister of Canada, mm. who said, "I will uh, shake your hands, but it, you know, but get out of Ukraine at the same time." And so, what did he do? He up and leaves the G20. And if you look at the um, look at the sort of political profiling that's going on in Washington at the moment, it starts something like this. You go back to the time that Putin started, ex-KGB, ideas that go along with how the KGB always decided it would uh, rule the world, um, with the feeling that its so-called near abroad, which we called the Warsaw Pact, uh, was taken away from them, and that we moved in and took over the territory. And this is a whole sense of security. And then you start looking at the personality of the man, and the personality of the man as the outsider it's almost as if the West patted his head and he was never actually, has never really been included in so many things. So he goes to a, a, a summit like that, an economic summit. He is out of place. He looks uneasy. He feels uneasy. When people talk about him, it's confrontational all the time. And when Obama said, for example, President Obama said, well, it's time to reset the relationship, all it did, if you read, I don't know, if you read something like Frankfurter Allgemeiner, uh, sorry, uh, German newspaper. So all Most mornings at breakfast, I have to say. You do. My I, know you. I, I, I know you do. But <laughs> um, it's, it's really, we've just developed an idea of pol a policy of op opening doors. Uh, and therefore, we haven't dealt with a single problem. And the single problem is Mr. Putin and how to bring him in and how to get his ideas the same. Now, the next stage is what is going to happen in Ukraine, and there is absolutely no doubt in that conference in Washington. The next stage in, in Ukraine is not a new Cold War, but it is he believes that he can do more or less whatever he likes because he has come to the conclusion, for all those reasons I've given you, the way people have treated him, he's come to the conclusion there's not a single thing that Western Europe and, especially, and the United States will do about it. And therefore, he is confident, and that is the way he's thinking. Was this, I hear, about a paper of yours being delivered in well, Washington? In Washington, yeah. At, the, at this conference, it was, it was something I dashed off. It's put here in front of me, that line. I was wondering, if I didn't mention it, maybe you'd walk out the studio sort of Putin-esque style. No, I would have mentioned it. <laughs> but, um, but we, we know that's true. But come to the important... This is the important point. I, mm. I lived in Moscow. It was the time of all the... Uh, the, the old-style KGB. The old-style KGB is back with a vengeance at the moment. There are more spying expulsions going on in the past eight months, nine mm. months. That's since April, since the whole thing started down in eastern Ukraine. Uh, it's happening in Germany. The Poles are at it. They've been expelled. The CIA was expelled from, from, from Berlin. And now it started in Moscow. And we're only seeing the start of it. Interesting times. Now, it's the 10th birthday today of the Centre for Military Health Research at King's College London. That's a decade when British forces have been at constant war and the need to understand health issues, including psychological problems, have been rethought. Its director is Professor Sir Simon Wesley, and earlier he spoke to Gisela Waldron. It was really out of the mess that had been made of what had become known as Gulf War Syndrome, for those of you who can remember that far back, which had been pretty much mismanaged. Nobody knew what was going on. And the key thing was there was no good, sound data on which to understand uh, what had happened, what had gone wrong, what the causes were and what the outcomes were. So with the start of Optelic, 
um, it was agreed that this couldn't continue, and we were therefore asked to do what we had done after Gulf, but in a rather inadequate way, from the start to be monitoring the health and well-being of the forces who were going to Iraq and those who hadn't, look at uh, common outcomes, follow physical and mental health, and therefore be able to detect if something went wrong again, we would know it early, and if it didn't, we would be able to reassure people uh, that things had improved. So that was really why it started. What would you say have been the centre's greatest achievements in this time? <laughs> in this day and age, mere survival is quite an achievement, I can tell you. But um, now I think there's a lot, really. I think the most important thing has been to provide continuously good data on the prevalence of, of conditions um, in mental health, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, um, uh, depression, and so on, and to show you know, that some of the kind of myths and mythologies out there uh, are really you know, not very accurate. Um, we've also looked at what are uh, some of the consequences of combat on health. Um, again, you know, we showed a big link with uh, violent behavior and drinking post-deployment. Not very popular, but unfortunately true. We did some work on tour length, and I think we were very instrumental in ensuring that tour length was you know, maintained at what it was and that harmony guidelines were, were kept to. We showed that when they weren't, there was a dramatic increase in mental health problems. Um, you, we've done, we, we were the first to show also that reservists, for example, are more vulnerable to problems than regulars. That led directly to increased support, uh, welfare and mental health support for reservists in 2006-07. And the list goes on. So, you know, the work is still ongoing on all sorts of issues, decompression, screening, R&R, families, kids, um, uh, and then, of course, the transition to civilian life. In the last 10 years, there's been a huge shift in attitudes towards mental health issues, particularly in the military. Do you feel that Kings can take credit for some of that? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'd use the word huge. Um, I always, I'm always slightly distrustful of huge shifts. These things take time. They're cultural shifts, and they may take a generation. But let's say there's been a shift. Um, I think we can over-exaggerate. Well, we, we actually know the size of it because we look at measures of stigma. But we have shown in the last few years that measures of stigma against, for example, mental disorders have reduced a little. We also played a large part in introducing um, a new system of peer support, the, the TRIM system, that maybe many people will be familiar with. And we showed in, in a trial what that could do. That was in the Royal Navy. And I think... Although that absolutely does not prevent post-traumatic stress disorder, the only real way to prevent that is not send people to war, but we've shown that it has led, I think, to some better understanding of the nature of these things. And I think that the really important thing is also in the recent years, what's happened is more and more people are coming forward now with disorders, and they're doing so earlier. So they're suffering uh, in silence for less than they used to be, and it used to be years and years. So they're coming forward now, which of course makes our you know, mental health services and our, our general practitioners much busier, but that's good. And I don't think any one people or any one group or any one thing can take the credit. These are social changes happening around us. The forces have played a huge part in you know, trying to uh, help uh, people come forward. But I don't want to get over-optimistic on this. There's still a long way to go. That was Professor Sir Simon Wesley talking to Gisela Walter and Christopher. Progress and attitudes towards mental health. Isn't it interesting that it, it, we've been all this year talking about the origins of the First World War and what happened during that war? Um, in the First World War, if you had shell shock, 
you quite often it was called cowardice by the army and you were shot. It is that sort of progress, that mm. understanding of the effects, not of war, but the effects of somebody being taken out of their normal environment. And it is only in the past 10 years since Simons Wesley's organisation was started that people have begun to understand the longer-term effects, lifetime effects, and that's the importance. Something I asked earlier in the programme, uh, Christopher, why have the Islamists gone to the bank? Ah, right. Um, IS... Islamic State, the idea is a, a caliphate, right? In other words, their own, their, own, their own state, their own uh, Islamic State. And when you have an own, uh, your, your own state, then you've got to have one thing. You've got to have your own currency. and The, the whole economy. Well, you've got to have an economy, and in, in, arguably you've got to have a central bank. This was the great debate, for example, in the Scottish independence vote uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. IS is making plans, I'm told to have its own currency. Who, by, it's, whom, by whom are you told? People who have been asked mm. how much it would cost to do it because somebody, really? somebody has got to mint this stuff. They're not going to start minting it in downtown Aleppo, are they? No, somebody outside, well away from the conflicts, has got to mint it. And the idea at the moment is what they want is this. They want something called the dinar. There are going to be two, uh, two coins, two separate coins. One is gold which will be really high-class stuff, but a gold alloy. And one is silver. Now, if you have that confidence, you expect to be around for a long time, and also you expect to take territory, and you can say to the population you've just taken, you've got to use this, otherwise you can't buy a single thing. In other words, we own you. That's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can join us, uh, follow us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, listen to us again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. Time to go, I think. Speak to you next week. Bye-bye. News. News. Sport. Sport. And music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.